everybody. This episode was conducted in a slightly different way than normal. I actually did it at Blizzard headquarters in Irvine, California. Big thank you to Jeff Kaplan for taking time out of his day to sit down with me and talk for an hour and a half. I don't have anything else other than this is one of our explicit episodes. So if you're young or a child or have young children, uh, there are some swears. So just a heads up about that. Let's get to it. date. Today is the 31st of January, 2019. It is 1 o'clock p.m. And I guess you want to, if you're ready to start, we can just yeah, start talking. Yeah, I, I am yeah. more than ready. All right. So hello. Hello. Uh, <laughs> for those of you who are listening to this and don't know uh, what it is, my name is Justin Bortnick. I'm here with a special guest. Uh, special guest. Who, who, who are you? I am Jeff Kaplan. I am the game director on Overwatch. Yes. You're popularly known as Jeff from the Overwatch team, I think. Yes. Whenever I talk, my brother plays a lot of Overwatch, and when I mentioned it, I was like, he was like, oh, Jeff from the Overwatch team. That's I how I from- always introduce myself. Yeah. yeah. He was like, I hear he's from the Overwatch. <laughs> uh, so the way that we usually start these out when I'm doing one is that the first yeah, half an hour, 40 minutes or so of the discussion is not about your work. It's about the everything else that you're doing in your life. And I, on our document here, I put this quote from Shigeru Miyamoto, which uh, I think embodies it, which says that when he's looking for people to hire, he doesn't look for somebody who's just a gamer. He looks for people who have wide, varied interests and skill sets, which maybe explains the success of his games, if that's who he's got working on. Yeah. But um, so usually we ask... you. Usually we have actually like a what are you doing and then what are you playing segment, but for the, the interest of time, since we only have so much time, we'll, I'm going to combine those so you can, if you're playing games or reading books or if you've seen any movies or anything, what is, like, what is interesting to you right now that you've been doing? Or like, you know, I guess you didn't do one of these last week like I did, so <laughs> uh, you can reach back further in your life than what you're doing right now, but like... Yeah, what we call it the haps. Like, what are I the see, haps? Like, um, like here's yeah. my current situation. Mm-hmm. My current situation, um, my t- I'll get to my other hobbies in a mm-hmm. second. Sure, but sure. My two main hobbies are making games and playing games. Um, You're I, in the right profession, then. <laughs> I love games. Mm-hmm. I, I really, really love it. And I've said this before, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I would be doing what I'm doing. If they didn't pay me, I would beg, you know, if they said, hey, we can't afford to pay you anymore, Jeff, I would say, um, can I please, you know, be a part of the Overwatch team? I feel Mm -hmm. like I have something to contribute. So I love making games. Making games is a hobby that's different than playing games. It's a different skill set. What I love about it is the creative collaboration with Mm -hmm. the different disciplines, art, audio, engineering, production, Mm -hmm. design, like you couldn't meet a more brilliant different group of people so that's super fun to me um i'm lucky that that's how i spend the majority of my time um here at work and when i go home i would say the majority of the time that i spend is playing games Mm -hmm. um right now like if this is the haps and we're talking about like the like 
two week, you know, to one month snapshot. Sure. Well, you can, you know, we can start there. And if there's like, you know, if there's something that you really want to point to is like, this is foundational for me and it, it informs okay. my work every day. You can talk about like, we're not rigid in our structure here. So, cool. Yeah. So what's happening right now is I'm playing, right now I'm actively playing three games. I usually have multiple games that I'm playing at once. Mm -hmm. um, I just finished uh, God of War and Red Dead Redemption 2. Okay. Um, I finished those. I finished God of War about two weeks ago. I finished Red Dead sometime around the first of the year. Like mm -hmm. uh, I, I played that like crazy. I played online for a couple weeks and then mm -hmm. I was done. And I, I just loved it. Red, Red Dead was like amazing. Um, the three games I'm playing right now are Overwatch. Um, I love Overwatch. I have so much fun playing the game. Um, I will always have fun playing Overwatch. If I'm ever not having fun playing Overwatch, my job is to make sure that I'm having fun playing yeah, you're Overwatch. You're uniquely positioned to fix yeah. that. Me and, and these awesome people I work with. So um, have a really good time playing Overwatch. Um, I'm also playing a lot of Hearthstone. Mm hmm um super proud last month i hit my highest rank which was two oh um, i think that's my highest rank too so yes and it's uh, as you would know hitting two is like the most tragic heartbreaking thing ever because it's yes. like you're so close to legend and you yeah. didn't get there i i always burn out i get too tired like I, playing to rank well you know at least five every month myself i'm like is this the month that I just go for it? And I like, how do I find the time? Yeah. It becomes so, I think it's like more time from five to legend than from everything on up. I don't know. I've never gotten there. So I got to two, last month I got to two, two times. Okay. And then I dropped to five yeah. multiple times. And then um, this month, actually just at, on my lunch break, I hit level three or rank three. So mm -hmm. that was exciting for me. Which, do you have a favorite deck that you're playing right now? Um, right now I'm other? playing even shaman. Okay. Um, and it's not that it's, a, I actually really love the deck. It's mm -hmm. super fun. Um, it's fun because it can be fast and it has, a, it can shift over into medium. I don't think right. it can ever become a slow deck, yeah. but, um, I'm mostly playing it because I'm trying to get 500 wins on every, oh, okay. um, class and I don't have shaman warlock and druid okay. yet that was my go-to deck for a couple months so yeah i know exactly what you're I, I don't even about. know if even shaman is appropriate for this meta it's more that i want to get the 500 wins and i'm at 450 some okay. right now so i'm like it's at least viable enough to get 50 wins in the sure, next sure. couple days weeks you know i've only got paladin so i've got you you're you're way ahead of me and how much you've won I, I've played a lot, and uh, like Priest, for example, I have well over a thousand wins on the Priest. Okay. Um, so I could have gotten other classes to right, gold, right. but I didn't yeah. do it. Um, so I'm playing a lot of that, and then the other game I play obsessively and is very time-consuming is Rust. Okay. And I... Um, it's like, is that one of those open-world survival yes. games? Okay. Yes, yeah. Rust is an open-world survival game. I believe it was released in 2014 in Early mm -hmm. Access, but it didn't go... It left Early Access at the beginning of this year. Um, I'm sorry, this, the beginning of 2018. Yeah, it's still... Yeah. It's only the first month. You're, five, you're, so, you're one day off of February. Yeah. I have about, I don't know, 15, 1,600 hours in Rust. That's a lot of game. It's, it's super time-consuming. Um, it's a brilliant game. Uh, mm -hmm. I love persistent open world games. Um, I love PvP. Rust is the most hardcore PvP experience. You know, when people talk to me about PvP and what's hardcore and what's not, and they haven't played a game like Rust, I'm like, oh man, I, 
it's too bad that it is the year 2019 because I, I would have had the game for you. Um, there was a game called Pyroto Mountain that was a BBS door game. That sounds BBS, I remember. Yeah. Wow. Um, and That's way old school. <laughs> yeah, but it had a successor. Like once, yeah. one, like, In the modern internet times, there was a successor to that game called Anket, which was a hardcore PvP game. It was... So the forums for the game were integrated into the game interface, and every user was a forum moderator in addition to having all their spells. So you could, like, delete other people's posts. Oh, my God. Or <laughs> you, And as you worked your way up, you could do things like cast a spell on another player that logged them out for two hours. Or, like, delete another player's account. And That sounds It hardcore. was really hardcore PvP, and... The goal was to build up sort of a network of political alliances in the player base so that if somebody tried to hit you with one of these, everybody would come to your defense. This sounds like uh, 90s? It's got to it be... like very early 2000s. Okay, like, early 2000s. Like 2002 or 2003 it was... I mean, you can still like create an account and log in, but it's got no players. It's, yeah. just, it's just old. But yeah, that was... Uh, That's crazy. Yeah, that... Those were some good some good years for uh, weird experimental in browser stuff. Well, that sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah, no, that sounds really cool. So that's kind of like mm-hmm. you know the gaming half of me is mm-hmm. um, making games, playing games, and on the playing games front, I'll go through. I'm not a comprehensive play everything person. Like sure. like some people will sample every single game that comes out and and play mm-hmm. it a little bit. I'm more of a hardcore play something like obsessively type of gamer, mm-hmm. um, which means that I get less games under my belt each year. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did love Subnautica last year. That was another great game that I thought was amazing. But I'm a little bit obsessive in my play style. So like when I played Red Dead Redemption, um, during the campaign, I had to do all the legendary animals. I had mm-hmm. to do all the trapper unlocks. I had to unlock... All the satchels, you know. And I did 100% of the original one, so yeah, I, I know what you went through. It's a lot. This it's, one's bigger. So. Yeah, I didn't 100% everything in Red Dead, but, you know, I kind of have that obsessive side to me a little bit where I play things pretty hardcore. Yeah. I, I had that one of those moments today, actually, as I was on the train here. Um, I'm playing through Final Fantasy X, which is old, but it's portable now. And I'm at the end of the game, and you have, there is a bunch of, like, optional it's garbage that you can do things that are like wildly out of proportion for what you would ever expect a player to do like dodge so i was like i read that you have to like oh dodge a lightning bolt 200 times in a row without getting hit and i got up to 40 and i was like okay uh, i got hit and i have to start over and after i think getting to like 40 or 50 like four or five times i was like okay this is not I've reached my limit on this. We have a game design philosophy mm-hmm. that I don't often say publicly because um, players don't like to hear it. They, mm-hmm. they think that it's very paternalistic um, or condescending, but the, mm-hmm. the phrase is protect the players from themselves. So we were, we were designing an achievement system on WoW, mm-hmm. and we kind of had a team-wide brainstorm, and people came to me a lot when I was making that system, and they said oh, you should put in an achievement for, like, kill 2,000 wolves. And I'm like, how do you think that's going to be played? And they're like, well, over the course of your WoW career, you're going to end up, you know, sure. there's a lot of wolves. No, and people will go out and They'll aggro you. Wolves. And I, I said, 
that's absolutely not what's going to happen. I'm like, that will happen for some players who don't care about achievements, mm-hmm. but there will be a player who cares about achievements who will find wolves on the fastest respawn. And then... That's me. Yes. That's what I did. I, and then, there are some of those achievements in WoW now. They've, yeah. They've crept in, and I, I still do them because I want the thing. And that that's the philosophy, and it's in no way meant to be dismissive of players or anything like that, but it's protect them from themselves. Why give yeah. them the encouragement? Right. Why say to you, like if I'm if I'm the designer creating the, the achievement, mm-hmm. um, if I want to tell you to dodge 200 lightning bolts, dodging lightning bolts better be really fun, no. and dodging 200 lightning bolts better be extremely fun. Nope. Otherwise, it's irresponsible. Dodging I mean, two lightning bolts is not fun. Yeah. yeah so. so it's an irresponsible... Yeah. Um, and that's why we have the phrase, protect right. the players from and like, themselves. Granted, this game is what, like 12 or 13... Yeah, Design sensibilities were in a different place at the time, for sure. But oh, this we'll make yeah. this mistake in twenty nineteen. Yeah, it's, yeah, I don't blame it on on age or anything but, like that. Yeah, um, yeah. So, do you have, are you doing other like non game? Like, have you seen any like movies or like are yeah you like, books? Like, yes. What, what, what are you drawing? I try to have some existence else. It's hard <laughs> when you when you're a Rust player stepping away <laughs> at all because you the, never know when your base is going to be offline. The, yeah, the Rust. Um, uh, recently I saw Into the Spider-Verse. Oh, I saw that too. Which, um, I'm going to say this and I'm going to lose nerd credit. I don't like superhero movies. It's I don't okay. Think... I also do not like superhero yeah. I will see a superhero movie that is independently good as a movie, but they're not a thing that I buy, like, buy into. I, I don't understand the current hype behind all the superhero movies. Mm-hmm. I don't think most of them are good movies. I don't think they have good storylines. Mm-hmm. Um... I like just so people don't think I'm a total asshole. Um, I loved the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight, but okay. I like those as works of art. I liked the first one of those. Um, I thought the first two were great. Yeah. I thought the Bane one was good, um, not horrible. I was um, entertained. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I just generally don't like superhero movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the characterization of the bad guy in Black Panther. I thought mm-hmm. was good. I thought he was a, a a great villain that I believed in. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget his name. Killmonger, right? Killmonger, yes. yes. Um, like, I thought the acting was great. I thought the way the character was written was great. Um, so that was a moment from a superhero movie that I thought was good. But Into the Spider-Verse, I looked at it as just like a work of art. Like, the music, the animation, um, the writing, the acting, like, the flow and the energy of the whole piece. Mm-hmm. Um it was so awesome. Um, I thought I just thought it was great. Um, so mm-hmm. that was recent. That's something I did recently. Um, I also um, I just finished. I noticed in your document that that you gave me ahead of this, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned like what books are you what what books are you reading? I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, I'm gonna get crucified on this one because the book that I just finished, and and I'm like super into literary fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't read a lot of sci-fi. I don't read a lot of fantasy. Mm -hmm. I read a lot of literary fiction. Um, But the book that I read most recently was um, Beastie Boys book. Okay. So is it like a, like a biography or it's a biography. Um, It was written by Adam Horowitz and Michael Diamond, who are Mike D and King Ed Rock, um, mm-hmm. MCA has passed on, mm-hmm. um, which is very sad. Um, so he's not around anymore. But the the two surviving Beastie Boys wrote basically it's like their memoir of okay. like this is how the band came to be and all these anecdotes and 
Um, it. I grew up on the Beastie Boys. I love their music to no end, and mm-hmm. like, in a lot of ways, their music kind of grew up with me. You know, sure. I know it's, it, it's not that way. That's a very self centered way of looking at it. But like, um, so it was just awesome reading about like their journey, mm-hmm. and um, I I don't know. It was it was a really great read. Anybody who was into the Beastie Boys or really into hip hop. Um, should should read and enjoy that book. But I thought when this question hits of like, what's the last book you've read? I'm like, oh my God, it was the Beastie Boys book. That's fine. Yeah. Let me tell you, I've read and talked about plenty of garbage on this. It's not, not that garbage. It's, garbage. Like, it's not garbage. But like, you know, okay, let, let me rephrase. Plenty of stuff that's not like high literary. It's not yeah. high literary. Right, right. Let's like, put it that way. It's, it's a pop culture book, right? Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I feel like we especially if you're in like a creative position, you have somewhat of a responsibility to sort of be keeping up on with, with the pop culture in that way. Right. Like I felt, although I, are the, I don't know, are the BC boys current pop culture? They're not. They are pop culture. <laughs> I'm trying to save you here. <laughs> for those of us who grew up in the eighties um, and nineties, they are yeah. pop culture. But um, the way I looked at it mm-hmm. is um, less of I'm staying current because I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, and more of, uh, it fed my soul. Sure. You know, that's, that's what matters. Yeah. I mean, I read the World of Warcraft books, right? So yeah. like, okay. Sometimes you just want to read something that like is entertaining to you and you'll like. And I think that's like, that's good. So the other thing that I'm doing right now outside of work, which has been so much fun, my wife gave me, um, a pass to, have you heard of Masterclass? Yeah. So, so my wife, so Masterclass, Masterclass has all these people in different fields who are just like the mega uber people of their field. Like, for example, um, Will Wright, they have a game design Masterclass and they have Will Wright teaching it. Mm -hmm. He was like, you know, there are very few people as brilliant as Will Wright when it comes to game design. Mm -hmm. And it's like 30 episodes of Will Wright talking about game design. And each one is, can be anywhere from like five to like 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so my wife got me this past semester class, and I've been listening. You know, obviously, ironically, I went straight to the game design one. I'm like, I need to learn, you know. She's like, this is going to be great because you're going to learn about all these things you don't know about. So is this, has it become like a net, like a net, like you pay like a subscription? Yeah. You have access to all of them? Okay, because I remember years ago it was like you paid for one class. No, no. What she got me was just like this all-access pass. That's really good. Um, That's I don't really know what their cool. business model is. I don't know how it works because it was a gift. Sure. But she basically said, hey, here's this master class thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See if anything's interesting to you. So like mm-hmm. immediately I cracked out on Will Wright, which was mm-hmm. awesome, awesome, awesome. Like anybody mm-hmm. interested in games, I would just say go watch the Will Wright master class. Um, the guy is a genius. Um, but what was crazy after that is um, there's all these people mm-hmm. and fields that you can learn about. So um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. He like he was very memorable because he, he would tweet a lot and he would right. put up like YouTube videos back when he was on the ISS. Mm-hmm. And um, he has a master class, which is like, here's what it's like to be an astronaut. And mm-hmm. He is such an intelligent human being, and he's so um, he speaks to you as if you're going to be an astronaut too. And he j- like so he he like That's speaks a career. <laughs> he speaks to you with like respect, which is kind of cool. And mm-hmm. um, like one of the master classes he does is you know here's what it's going to be like on launch day when you go to like take off. And he because he did I guess uh, two runs in the space shuttle mm-hmm. and one trip in the Soyuz up to the ISS, and he's like. 
here's here's what launch day is going to feel like for you. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. And then there was this guy named Jimmy Chin, who um, is an adventure photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, who, when you think about like who takes the picture that's on the cover of National Geographic, like those gorgeous mountain climbing shots, sure. it's this guy Jimmy Chin, and he's so humble and so inspirational. But it's like even if you you know like or like for me, for example, I'm never gonna be. I'm never going to be a mountain climber. I'm never going to get a picture on the cover of National Geographic. So it's, I'm not like taking this master class and I'm writing notes. Of like, You know, oh, what F-stop does Jimmy use or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's more of him as a human being who has achieved so much. Okay. And how did he get to that place in life? Yeah, this sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was just awesome. Like I was so inspired by... Um, Jimmy Chin, and then it made me seek out more, like learning more about him. Like um, he and his wife just directed this film called Free Solo um, that I haven't seen yet. But I've heard I'm, people I'm, talking about it. Yeah. Like, I know people who have seen it and have recommended it. Um, which is about the gentleman, I'm going to get his name wrong. I think it's Alex Hammond, who basically climbs El Capitan without a rope, like right. nothing. Just like, mm-hmm. I'm going to scale the fucking mountain now with my bare hands. And like, this is the craziest thing ever to me, but it's so cool that there's all these layers of like, you know, well, that's pretty interesting. I want to know about that person. But then even Jimmy Chin, who, who made the movie about him mm-hmm. and his philosophy about making that movie, that's even interesting. So these masterclass videos, um, they've been, I just, my wife and I just keep watching that. I watched mm-hmm. Armin Van Buren, um, who does, He's like a trance DJ, mm-hmm. um, and my wife loves his music. So we watched, and and highly technical, like getting into, he literally composes a song, and he gets to a point in the master class where he, he kind of is just like ignoring that he's even doing master class. He's just making a bitchin' song, mm-hmm. and you're realizing like, I'm sitting in the studio with this amazing musician as he's like composing. It's just, I find it highly inspirational. So what are we getting the Jeff Kaplan master class? Oh, I don't, I'm not, after yeah. watching Will Wright, I'm yeah. like, there's no way I'm, I'm did worthy. You have, did you have like one takeaway from that Will Wright? Like, or, know, not one, but like what, what was the, you know, if it, as, as a really inspiring sort of 30 episode series? I wouldn't say it like, there was no one um, takeaway. It's um, more of like the craftsmanship of making games okay. is deep and complicated. And, um, okay, I will give you one takeaway from the Will okay. Wright um, you can do more than one if you think that there are like a couple things. I think sometimes people who aren't involved with making games think that things happen accidentally, mm-hmm. um, or that like things just come to be somehow mm-hmm. without a lot of decision making. And watching the thought that someone like Will Wright puts into every decision that goes behind not just the game design but every aspect of game development. Mm-hmm. Um, is really telling and it's 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 a note for all of us to remember that great movies great games great books um great musical compositions didn't just come to be you know of course there's inspiration of course there's you know happy accidents that happen in all all creative processes but that the people creating these things are putting an intense amount of thought into every decision and mm-hmm. you really see that in will Wright. For sure, yeah, and you can't you can't have the product at the end without all of their contributions or all of their like they are all the authors of the work, I guess. Yeah, presaging or what we'll talk about later, but yeah.
so so that's that's it for you i guess on the your, i your, i have other your, interests like I, yeah. I really love photography um oh, yeah i'm surprising that that you yeah <laughs> well my my wife um she got me a dslr um probably like 10 12 years ago now i don't remember exactly when it was mm. and um you know i'm not a great photographer i don't have um I don't have the artistic skill of some of these people I work with, you right. know, like I, I watch what they can do in, in Photoshop and they're kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, but I really love taking pictures. Um, I love trying to learn about the technology and learning, you know, things like, um, not only how to operate the camera, but also things like, um, how to get the most out of Lightroom, Lightroom's right. the Adobe software for like mm -hmm. photo editing. Um, so that's been interesting yeah. to me. I fooled around with drone photography, okay. um, which is a lot of fun. Like drones are amazing. There's um, one that flies near my house that these kids have like at least once a week that I think they're just taking photos, but I see it all the time. Yeah. Well, I try yeah. to be respectful. Like if I fly the drone near my house, I fly it. There's a hill behind our mm -hmm. house and I try to fly it out over the hill and not right. over any neighbor's house. Mm -hmm. um, and then I've also, I actually spoke with my neighbors ahead of time. Um, where I said, like, hey, I got this, you know, I got this drone. I'm going to be flying. If it's ever annoying you, let me know. And mm -hmm. also that they know it's me. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sitting there, like, aiming the camera on their backyard because that's right. just weird and creepy. Sure. So, um, but uh, drone photography is really, really cool. Um, it's a fun mix of technology and art, you know, which yeah. is, like, what games are. Yeah. I was into photography. I, I, I was interested in photography when I was really little, and I did it class and... We did all the things like learning how to like load the film and develop it by hand in a darkroom, and just. I took a photography course at USC, now. which was. Yeah. I don't think it's useless at all. I actually think um, having a knowledge for how some of that worked, because mm -hmm. a lot of the way digital photography sort of evolved and grew right. up was mm -hmm. all the master photographers who who grew up in the school of darkroom and mm -hmm. developing, and um, it was good to have that knowledge anyway. Um, yeah. And there's a sense. A sensibility and a warmth to um you know old school photography that shouldn't be lost so i, I don't mm -hmm. think that's a waste at all well i'm i don't i guess no knowledge is truly a waste but i'm not sure i'm going to be using it anytime yeah. soon well when yeah. the zombie apocalypse that's hits true. and yeah yeah and we regress you know 30 years you'll be ready for yeah. it yeah man it'll it'll yeah, well, it depends on how far we regress, right? We could go full Horizon Zero Dawn, right, and just no cameras. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's very true. You got, so that's, Your cave I guess, painting put needs those to be zombies, up. Yeah. Yeah, put those zombies on notice. Like, regress us somewhat, but not all the way. Yeah. I really, like, haven't read anything myself, so I, like... You're you're doing better than me <laughs> with my Beastie <laughs> with, Boys with your Beastie book? Boys book. Yeah. I also um, I'm notorious for um, reading the same stuff at different stages of my life, oh, so I, okay. I don't end up making. I do make a lot of progress in my in my reading, mm -hmm. but um, there's a lot of going back, and, it, and it's really interesting to read something that spoke to you one way at one point of your life, and then reading it again at a different point of your life. So like. Examples of things that I'll, I'll read over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, every few years, I'll reread um, Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Okay. That's one of my favorite books of all time. And um, Like four or five years ago. Yeah, it was yeah. super inspiring to me in my 20s. And it, mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously we don't live in the age of hitchhiking across the country anymore. And that's not really a thing right now. But like the spirit of 
get out and see the world and uh, appreciate people and surround yourself with brilliant, you know, people who are um, basically like bright burning fireworks is mm -hmm. um, something I believe heavily in. So reading that as you age is pretty interesting um, and your, your philosophy and the more you grow roots, you know, what your mm -hmm. philosophy is on, on the road. And then conversely, um, there's a great short story writer named Raymond Carver. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, I always appreciated his writing. As a writing student, I mm -hmm. thought, he, like, he was a master of the short story and just the way he could take a very simple domestic setting and have such deep meaning in it. Um, but it was really interesting because I started reading um, Carver before I really was at that stage of life mm -hmm. that he was at when he was writing the stories or that the characters were at in the stories and now I'm like that age that he was writing about. And so that's something like for me, like, like a, you know, like a wine that is aged and mm -hmm. just gets better and better. So um, reading Carver stories, um, they make me really emotional and like a deep, sad sort of, I can only read so much. Um, one of, one of my favorite stories that he wrote is called Cathedral, which is about uh, this guy, this like sort of kind of questionably motivated guy um, whose wife is good friends with a blind man. Mm -hmm. And the wife is kind of nervous because the husband just doesn't have the greatest social graces. Mm -hmm. And the blind man's going to come and stay with him like he's traveling or something. And, hey, he's got to stay with us for the night or whatever. Mm -hmm. And this guy just kind of can't handle how, like, that this guy's blind. And he ends up um, getting stoned with him. <laughs> like, it's like this... Super weird story, but it's very moving to me in, in some way that I'm not profoundly putting into words. But um, no. And I understand the, like, the reread impulse. You know? I mean, I, I've done that myself a couple of times. You know, stuff that I like, I mean, I'm, you're, you're older than I am, but not that much. And thinking about stuff that was inspirational to me like when I was a kid, because I read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy when I was really little. And like, thinking about how much of that holds up. And I went back and I read like, Stranger in a Strange Land again or Dune again, and they, they were still good. Like, I didn't, I was like, oh no, my taste has changed and these are bad now. But they really do, like, I think that there is value to be had in that practice because you really just, your psychology changes. And oh yeah. That you don't think, that you had no way of anticipating. But Well, yeah. I have a great example of that, um, which is the book 1984. I read that in, like, uh, freshman year of high school. Yeah, well, I read, this is how fucking ancient I am, I read 1984 in 1984. Okay. Like, they had a special edition of the book. I That's can remember the one the, that I had. Yeah. I and had the 1984. So the first time, and I was like 12 or whatever. Mm -hmm. I was 11 or 12 in 1984. And um, I loved the book. Mm -hmm. And how I read it at that age wow, that'd was... that would be like a weird book to read at 11, I feel. Yeah. I, I mean, I read a lot of weird books at 11. Right. But... Um, the way I read that book was I kind of treated it like um, almost like a sci-fi book. I'm like, oh, this is kind of like this alternate world. It's very interesting. And then, you know, I, I read it. I think I, I'm trying to think of the last time I reread it. It was probably my 30s. Um, I definitely reread re it in my 20s. But it was interesting as I got older, I was focused more on like at, at different stages, sometimes the craft of writing and how Orwell wrote as, mm -hmm. as um, you know, one of the greatest writers of our time. But then also, um, as I got older, I started to focus more on the politics of it. Mm -hmm. um, 
which was just, you know, really profound. And then I had also read, um, Orwell has a book of essays mm -hmm. that's, um, really, really great. Um, I think it's just literally called like George Orwell essays yeah. or something like that. I've read a bunch of his, I don't know how but, many, which ones are in yeah, that. Yeah. He has one, one yeah, where he was like a, um, some sort of municipal guy in in Burma back when it was called Burma mm -hmm. and he had to shoot an elephant like he had a whole story about that that was just amazing but the great essay for me in in that book was um called why I write mm -hmm. and it was George Orwell explaining um like what why he decided to um write in his his um lifetime and it's really um moving and deep like like it's like a calling to him. It's not just like, well, I thought the money would be good or like, boy, I would look good on the back of a book cover. Like it's not ego like yeah. that. It's like he actually feels this like service to humanity and that's why he's writing. Um, like it's like it's um, a debt he has to pay back or something. And he talks about in that essay, he says, um, you know, the current thing that I'm writing, and I don't know if it'll be good or not. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Right. Like, this is not That's a exactly how he said it. Yeah, yeah, right. And he's like, uh, this current thing that I'm writing, I don't know if it's going to be good or not, but here's why I have to write it, and here's why it's really important. And you realize when you look at the date of when the essay was written that he's talking about 1984, and it's mm -hmm. not even written yet. Mm -hmm. So then, like, reading 1984 after reading his motivation for writing the book is right. it's just kind of like mind-blowingly uh inspiring and um deep and i, I don't know i love thinking yeah. about stuff this, like that this is a good transition point i think your own work then is like i said in the in the document like i did some research i didn't come into this totally blind like i read i read the wikipedia page oh the um, wikipedia yeah. nice um, yeah but i was wondering who writes that like well, Wikipedia will show you if you, if you oh. like go to the the edits history. Like, I mean, it'll show you that like it was you know, probably my ba mom, bagel, <laughs> bagel lover seven two three in like Alabama. It edited this part or whatever. But um, yeah, so I saw you know you even you're from the LA area. I guess it said you were like born in New York, but it said you grew up around here more or less. I was born in New Jersey. New Jersey. Okay. Yeah, I, I wish it had been New York, but it was New Jersey. Okay. Um, at a very young age, I moved out to California. My yeah. parents moved out to California, right. so I always. I, I mean, I'm in California. I grew up. Right. This is where I sure. grew up. Yeah, uh, you went to USC as you as you said. Yes. You did. You were in the English department there, which is my department. So. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah. yeah, so we probably, I don't know, I wonder how many of the professors are still there, probably. I, um, I recall the creative writing professors the most, mm -hmm. um, because they were amazing writers. Yeah. Um, there are three in particular that might still be there. Okay. Um, T.C. Boyle. He is emeritus now, but he, okay. he comes back, I think, every year and does one-on-one -on -one meetings with the math, creative writings PhD students in crit for critiques and stuff. I was in... T.C. Boyle's writing workshop when I found out Kurt Cobain had killed himself. Like, there couldn't have been a more 90s moment to okay. have in your lifetime than that. T.C. Boyle is actually, like, weirdly kind of related to me. Really? Because his... So my aunts, like, they're not married, but they're, like, life, life partners together. They've been together for years. His sister's spouse is, I think, Boyle's spouse's sister or something. So, like, they're... Not actually, yeah, but there's like a weird, I, and I was out visiting my aunt, and her her uh, partner was like, does Tom Boyle still work there? He's like my brother-in-law or something. I was like, what? 
He was um, he was an awesome professor. He was really cool. He kind of was like this rock star writer. Yeah. Um, he he was like a shoot straighter, uh, straight shooter with you. Yeah. Like um, you go to his office hours, and his office was always amazing to me because you'd walk into his office and it was just all pictures of him, like Good. you know, like all press articles, and mm-hmm. so it was very intimidating because he was like very much this rock star writer. Mm-hmm. Um, it was T C Boyle. Um, David St. John, who is a there. poet. He's the head of the department right now, I believe. Is he really? Yes. Um, I'm sure he doesn't remember me at all. Um, his poetry was amazing. His poetry workshop was amazing. I did. He, he does a class. I, I did a class with him um, a couple of years ago. That is really, he, I think he does it every other year called Writer and Composer. I don't know if he was doing it at the time, but it's a class yeah. joint taught with the music department. And it pairs PhD... Uh, English students with the, uh, for I guess, classical composition PhDs, and you write a poem, and then they set it to music, and they hand it off to the singing masters, and they perform it. That's so cool. And it's a really cool collaborative. I would have killed for that. So I was, I, I mean, I was getting a bachelor's degree, right. so I was lucky to be in any class with David St. John at that mm-hmm. point. Sure. And then um, it was Carol Muskie Dukes. Yeah, and she's still there as well. Yeah, had, she... she she was awesome. Yeah, I, I loved her, and she was so good to me. She was so um, encouraging. You know, as a young writer, yeah. um, I think um, she really cared about us, like, having our shot. Um, and mm-hmm. she, I remember I was in the, the stairwell of uh, Mark Taper Hall, you know, like the, where the English yeah. department, that's where they yeah. all had their offices. Yeah, that's where and my office is. Well, <laughs> I was walking up the stairs, and she grabbed me, and she said... Um, uh, you're getting a poetry scholarship. And oh. I'm like, what do you mean? I didn't apply for any scholarship. And she's like, no, this is just one that, you know, we mm-hmm. review, we've been reviewing all the poetry students. And mm-hmm. um, so my entire writing career, you know, I never got anything published. I never had any success. But the only validation moment I ever got was from Carol Muskie Dukes when she yeah. was in charge of, um, it was the Mark Greenberg uh, Scholarship mm-hmm. in Poetry. And uh, she awards me, and it meant so much to me. Yeah. It was yeah. uh, noted poet laureate of California, right? So yeah, and it was just it was just a really really cool moment. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was the whole so you crew. Were, you were on the poetry side, not the pro, the fiction side. I did both. I mean, okay. as a as a young creative writing student um, in the bachelor's program, you didn't mm-hmm. yet have a focus. They, okay, and in fact, it was encouraged that you did fiction and poetry. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, I think I was a better poet than I was a fiction writer. Okay. I was more attracted to fiction writing. I was more attracted to storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, poetry is about mastery over words. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if I had that or not, but um, I think poetry came more naturally to me than mm-hmm. writing fiction. I'm also, when it comes to English and grammar, I'm, I'm kind of a hack, you know, like I, like. That's just not, mm-hmm. it's a, not my expertise. It's embarrassing. My wife teases me sometimes. Like, you have a master's degree in English, and, like, this is how you talk. And I'm like, eh, I grew up on the internet, you know? Yeah. <laughs> what yeah, do you so, expect? So, so, yeah, so you went, you went to, uh, what, NYU for the master's. I remember yeah. you saying you, you were had, a, what is it, E.L. Doctorow was, was there yeah, at the Yeah, he was my yeah. thesis advisor, mm-hmm. which was super awesome. Um, he wrote Billy Bathgate and Ragtime. Sure. And um, it was super awesome. He lived in... If you ever been to NYU, there are these old yeah. colonial homes right off of Washington Square, like one block up. 
that mm-hmm. that I think NYU owns them all, and like the the super prestigious professors have those houses. And right, right. Um, Doctoro invited us all to his house one time for like a party, um, and he was he was just like this sweet, gentle, brilliant, you know, very quiet writer, um, mm-hmm. very humble. And I remember asking him, um, and because this is like you know we're deep into the spring of my second year of my master's degree. So mm-hmm. you're kind of having that, oh shit moment. I've got to like grow up and have a real life. And in, in like right. a month or two, two or three years, it was two years. Okay. So yeah, you're, you're right about to graduate. Yeah. So I asked him, I remember asking him at that party in his house. I, I remember saying, do you think I have what it takes to be a writer? And it's just such a dumb fucking question. And in like hindsight, I'm like, why would you ever, but it What's was such like yeah. the 24 year old thing to do, mm-hmm. you know, and no offense to any 20 or the 24 me thing to do, the immature mm-hmm. me thing to do mm-hmm. is to ask that question. And he's like, you know, he just, he gave me an answer that just has always stuck with me. He's like, only, you know, that like you have, this is up to you to prove this is what your life is going to be about is, mm-hmm. is, you know, can you do this or not? That No one can tell you. And don't, if anybody tells you, don't believe them. Yeah. So. Do you, I guess, given your career changes and your sort of, you said you know you, you tried you never got anything published. What thinking about Orwell and sort of why he writes? So do you, do you have thoughts about sort of like why you did, were your reasons similar to what you were talking about with Orwell or like what how has your thinking about no. writing changed? So um, I can answer that better about games than I can about writing, okay. and I think that's why. I am a game designer and a game director and okay. not a writer. <laughs> okay. Um, sure. So you want to talk about ultimate, you know, like like life sort of finding a path for you. Mm-hmm. With writing, um, there was something as a creative person, um, and many creative people will be able to relate to this. Um, there's something inside of you that you need to get out, you need to mm-hmm. express, and you need to share it with other people. And sometimes that's all we know. And as a young creative person, um, which which I was, and I hadn't yet found my calling, mm-hmm. I was looking for every way to do that. And and you know my my life before college was a lot about music and filmmaking and mm-hmm. you know these other pursuits, which right. is really a creative person fighting their way through the dark, trying right. everything to say I have something to say creatively, and I just don't right. know how to say it. Right. And so I think um, how I had gotten to writing was um, I started because I was passionate about music. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents, um, you know, my whole family was very business oriented. And, mm-hmm. and um, my oldest brother is the CFO. Uh, my uh, older, younger brother is um, in mutual funds and finance. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad uh, owned his own business for, for 25 years and was a business owner. So... I was the black sheep of the family and the youngest, which, you know, like there's a lot of strikes against you when you're in that situation. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm going to be a musician. Like I'm going to be a drummer. And my dad's like, yeah, I don't think you're going to be able to put food on the table. So he, he really was pushing for me to go to a four-year school. And what other interests do you have that could be like a real <laughs> job and make money? I'm like, oh, well, I love making movies. And um, he respected that because a lot of his clients were, were the Hollywood studios and he had a lot of contacts in Hollywood. Yeah. And so I started, you know, pursuing filmmaking because I thought that was really cool and I loved movies and, and I loved storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I interned for four years in, in the film industry. 
Mm-hmm. And all I learned, and I tell a lot of interns this now that we work with, mm-hmm. is sometimes the best thing you can get out of the internship is realizing that you either A, don't want to work at that company, or B, don't want to work in that industry. And that's success. That's a successful internship. It doesn't sure. mean anybody did anything wrong. And um, I came away going, I don't like the big studio Hollywood system. I don't. It's not the kind of creativity um, or the creative collaboration that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And it funneled me towards creative writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if creative writing was the right calling for me at the time. In fact, in hindsight, it's as much as I love writing, mm-hmm. both fiction and poetry, um, I don't think I had the talent mm-hmm. to make it. I, I, it's not, I don't think I didn't, you know, I didn't have the talent to make it. I'm not, I'd never published anything. You know, you don't know of any of my poems or any of my short stories. Mm-hmm. And it's not like it you was didn't a write pa- all of the short stories for Overwatch. <laughs> <laughs> I did not. Um, and it's not like it was a passing fancy. This right. is like we're right. talking you about masters, right? from, yeah, yeah I, I, I did not join Blizzard Entertainment until I was 29 years old. So mm-hmm. most of my 20s was spent failing as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, with, with game design, it was very different, or game mm-hmm. development, it was different for me where obviously I had something creative I wanted to say in the space or how I wanted to participate with other game makers um, I loved playing games. So that those were the two obvious things. Mm-hmm. But um, even more so um, with games, I had this strong feeling of uh, this could be better. Um, and I have a very clear picture instantly in my head of how this could be better um, or how we could execute against this um, mm-hmm. in some way that would make the overall experience um, enhanced over what we were trying before or what somebody else had tried before us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was crystal clear. I remember saying to somebody, we were having a des- uh, game design discussion, and I, and I remember somebody asked me, they said, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Mm-hmm. Like, how did you come up with that design or whatever? And I'm like, well, doesn't that just seem obvious to you? Right. And the person turned to me, and I didn't mean that, like, it's such an asshole statement when I think about it now. It's very condescending, right? Like, yeah. Like, like, it, well, well, that's, yeah. I, I didn't mean it that right, way, right, right. But that's how I actually meant off, it, right. like, genuinely, like, um, like, the wall behind you is orange. Right. And if you ask me, like, what color is the wall behind you, I'd be like, well, isn't it obvious to you that the wall is orange? Right. Like, we can sure. both see that. And I kind of had answered the question that way. And the person actually had that reaction kind of like you just had where, where I, I don't think they were offended because they, they knew I didn't mean it in an offensive way. And, right. and they, it could be they actually off. said to me, um, I think you think a little bit differently about games than most people do. And mm-hmm. I don't think that what you just said would have been obvious to most people. And um, man, it sounds super egotistical to be talking about this so it's kind of freaking me out a little bit and I don't mean it like I have something that others don't everybody on this floor everybody on my team has Mm -hmm. that same thing like they're all in the same space as me but um the difference between like we're talking about was writing my calling or was game making the calling with writing I'm that guy who's still struggling and I would turn to an Mm -hmm. accomplished writer and say how did you come up with that? And they would turn to me and say, well, it just felt obvious to me. Right. And that's why I'm not a writer. Whereas with mm-hmm. games, there's an intuition and a, and a natural taking to the craft. Yeah. So 
I guess you, you said you were, what, 29 when you got yeah. into games, and you, you got into games because you were playing EverQuest with Rob Pardo, right? Yes. And he brought you in, and you did QA on Warcraft 3. I didn't do QA, no? actually. Okay, so I I have... only, all I know is from yeah. the Wikipedia article, so there are going to be a lot of good edits that I can make to that nice. article, right? So, so um, I, was brought in, I was brought in as associate game designer okay. on the World of Warcraft team, mm-hmm. and this was May of 2002, Okay. History will show that Warcraft 3 shipped in July of 2002. Okay. Um, I think on July 2nd or 3rd. I forget the exact date. It was right around the 4th. Right. Um, so Blizzard was small then. We were fewer right. than 200 people. Mm-hmm. And um, the first thing that happened when I, when I first joined Blizzard to uh-huh. be on the World of Warcraft team was um, we were showing at E3 later mm-hmm. that month in right. May. And so we crunched like crazy to get a, like a World of Warcraft demo done. Mm-hmm. As soon as E3 was finished, they rolled the entire World of Warcraft team to work on um, Warcraft 3 mm-hmm. and help ship it and push it out the door. Okay. And as somebody who was a brand new game designer, like I barely had any skills mm-hmm. even to help World of Warcraft get to that E3 demo. Mm-hmm. And I was I was like an MMO kid who was becoming a designer at the right. time, um, so throwing me onto an RTS and I had never played an RTS before. You know, um, this is like a month before Warcraft Three shipped. Um, basically, what I would do is um, Alan Adham would come by. Um, he was kind of running the strike team. He's one of the founders of Blizzard, and he mm-hmm. was helping Pardo out with the design of right. Warcraft Three. And um, he was the lead uh, on World of Warcraft at the time. Alan would come by to, like, my office mm-hmm. and say, okay, I want you to play Orc, you know, one through four and write all your notes up and mm-hmm. we'll talk about it this afternoon. Um, so my my credit in Warcraft 3 is additional testing. Um, okay. So I wasn't, I guess it's a QA thing, but it was more like I was providing feedback. Um, I, and I can imagine that, that you, you said you crunched real hard for that. Um, yeah, yeah, I crunched really um, hard for that. But, you know, just from, I, I, I was told, I don't know, do you know Ed Del Castillo? Um, the name he, is very He familiar. did Command and Conquer, so he's big in RTSs uh, historically. But I've talked to him a bunch, and he said that his game Battle Realms, which came out, I think, a year before Warcraft 3, which was the one that introduced the idea, of, not of heroes, because Warcraft 2 had heroes, but of, like, heroes as unique characters with their spells and their... And he said that that game came out and his friends at Blizzard said that they had to, like, pause development on Warcraft 3 and delay it because yeah. they wanted to take all of that into their game. And so I can already imagine that sort of the situation, like, oh, we had to retool the entire hero system in our game to exist. I yeah. was... So I so wasn't this, around long yeah. enough mm-hmm. to know... I wasn't... You have to keep in mind, like, right. I had so been at Blizzard were, for right. two months. Right. So a month of it was so wow-focused. impacted time yeah. frame that they were already working on as a result of having to do that. Yeah. So. The industry was very different yeah. back then. Like, crunch was very different back then and very much a reality. And it's not Still like that anymore. Um, some places. <laughs> yeah. It's not like that here. Right. Right. Um, right. right. So, which is good. Like, I literally, on Warcraft 3, um, one of my shifts was over 24 hours. I... I, uh, it's too much. It's very interesting when you see people come in in the morning <laughs> who you had said goodnight to the night before. Right. Um, that's a trippy period of time. But that doesn't exist here at Blizzard anymore. So, um, so we've changed a lot. Well, that's good. Yeah. Uh, it's, I think it's necessary. So when you're working on a game like that, like whether it was Warcraft 3 or World of Warcraft, um, 
I guess even now, uh, although your position has changed over the years, sort of how thinking back to your time in the sort of cre- on the creative writing side, you know, my own experience is sitting at a creative writing workshop, and you know it's your week, which means your stuff is up there on display. Everybody read it, and they're going to tear you apart for two hours or however long it is. And how 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 translatable I think is what I'm going to ask. Did you find the experience of that to the under game design team? Were like were things different? Was the mentality similar and sort of critiquing each other's work? Was that experience just something the team knew how to do? How yeah. What you just asked about is is the number one thing that translates from a creative writing program. Mm-hmm. to a game development job. It's really interesting because a lot of people who aren't familiar with game development or who aren't familiar with creative writing, they would always say to me like, oh, it's obvious why you became a game maker. It's because of that creative writing degree. So you just kind of write the story of the game, right? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't, you know, they no. wouldn't let me near writing the story of the game. Like, they're, like that's not what I do. Um, and so it gets asked of me a lot, like, well, was there anything from your creative writing experience? And exa- exactly what you honed in on. Mm-hmm. Um, for our workshops, um, both at USC and at NYU, when our work was up, whether it be poetry or fiction, mm-hmm. we weren't allowed to talk. Yeah. I don't know if they still no, do it that that's way. That's the same. You but, usually have to wait until the end once yeah, everybody else has spoken. Like we, No one wants to hear from the writer, um, and the writer should not have to sit there and defend themselves. Mm-hmm. The writer should be, if you're doing your job right, you should be trying to learn from this feedback you're right. getting and saying to yourself, do I agree with the problem or not? And how should I fix the problem? Right. Because it's not, it may be harsh, but it's not meant maliciously. No. It's like they're trying to help you be better. Yeah. But human beings are, uh, have a range from awesome to terrible mm-hmm. when it comes to giving feedback. And, um, a lot of the times the terrible feedback is actually useful. Mm-hmm. You know, they're actually honing in on the correct problem. Right. They're just saying it like a jerk. Right. And they don't realize it. And um, what became, what got trained up in me was that ability to parse feedback mm-hmm. and to try to take the personal sting out and process the criticism and use it to make the work better. And that's what we do in game design all the time. Luckily, the game developers that I work with at Blizzard are much better at giving feedback. They understand, and some of it's because they get so much feedback, that they don't give feedback in a terrible way that makes you feel crappy. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can be very direct and very to the point, but in a mm-hmm. way that makes you feel like they're in it with you. Yeah. Um, the internet is a total difference. Or the internet is the <laughs> wild west. There's a lot of feedback on the internet. Yeah, it's like um, somewhere between a fire hose and a shotgun to the face is how I would describe at any moment, you know, I could uh, get that level of, anybody on my team could get that level of feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you can live in the world where you can put your head in the sound and ignore it, Mm -hmm. but I like to exercise what those muscles I developed in creative writing, which is, well, how do you process that feedback into something useful and how do you let it not get to you? Mm-hmm. It gets to me. Um, what's weird is I'm very good at processing feedback. I, I can take the most angry uh, vitriol and go, actually, that person has a good point, And this mm-hmm. is what they're complaining about. And I can sit with uh, my design team who are brilliant, sound-minded people. And we can go, here's how we're going to fix that problem. 
but it hurts, you know, like, right. You, I never Still learned a person, right? So yeah, I never learned how to, the part that I didn't learn is I can filter out the sting. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't learn that. I learned how to process the feedback into something useful and I learned how to be very professional in not letting it shake or rattle me. Mm-hmm. But I would be lying if the negativity didn't affect me on a deep level every single time. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting sort of the, that working, because especially when you're on either like a live game, I guess, which is which is very different from just sort of a thing that you put out. And I guess now like even, even things that you put out still get patches, but traditionally that's not how it's worked. Um, but I, it makes me think, you know, when we were making Frog Fractions and we had basically what was a live game, um, even though the product wasn't out because we were running an alternate reality game. I don't know how much of this you looked into sort of in, in terms of what I've done, but we had a, a multiple year long alternate reality game. And that meant just like delivering live content every week, something new or novel or, you know. If we were lucky, it wasn't every week because they hadn't solved whatever the last thing yet was. But so much of that development was like looking at what they're doing, listening to that feedback, saying, oh, their idea, like they didn't like this or like this didn't work or like some people would like, had some, like would say really mean things about it or whatever. And it was just trying to figure out how do we, how do we move forward from here, especially because let me tell you, I, I guess you guys have done have done ARGs for Overwatch at this point. Yeah. Um, I remember because Sombra was running at the same time oh, as ours. Oh, was it ours. really? And that was actually, here, I'm going to give you some negative feedback, not from me, but from our community, which is, because uh, they were both being solved by, like, a, the Game Detectives. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Well, yeah. Game Detectives, I think, was founded to solve our ARG originally, or if they weren't, it was, like, concurrent with the creation. And their their feedback was, like, Frog Fractions Arg is much better than Sombra Arg because like Sombra Arg doesn't seem to know what it what it's doing. And I was like, we're making this up every week from scratch. So yeah. it was like I, We were winging it. Yeah. We, but, yeah. but that, we were doing the exact same thing. So it was really funny to sort of watch that we we used the Sombra skull in ours as a joke. Uh, oh nice. Uh, to 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 sort of play with that community since they were solving both of them. But you really just like sometimes they came up with something that was better. And we were just like, okay, the yeah. thing that we made is irrelevant. Like, we're just going to go with what they came up with. And that's the, the quote-unquote right answer now. It wasn't what we were looking for, but it's better. So, like, the, you really do have to figure out that feedback stuff. Yeah. Um, something that I'm interested in in my own work, both as, I guess, a, a writer and a game designer, um, is sort of the differences between various types of media. And so you said, you know, you, you worked as a writer, you worked in game design. You said you also interned at movie, th- in the movies yeah. for, you say a couple of years, did you say? Four years, years. Four years. yeah. Every so, year that I was at USC, I, um, so I was at uh, do you Universal have, Pictures. Do you have major thoughts sort of about what, what these mediums do particularly well that the other, so of those three, for example, like what, what do games do that is unique and better than books or movies what like that and and sort of vice versa like how can you talk about these the the relative strengths of each type of media what's exciting about games is um the the player's presence in the game Mm -hmm. um movies are brilliant you know when it comes to storytelling books are brilliant when it comes to storytelling 
Um, games can be brilliant at linear storytelling like movies and books, but to me, the greatest games are not the story-based, you know, mm-hmm. linear, oh, that was a great, you know, 10-mission campaign with a really cool story. What's What's more valuable than anything is the player story mm-hmm. and the player being at the center of the experience. And that's something um, that right now no other medium has is a level of presence from the person engaging with the entertainment mm-hmm. um, that, and they're front and center and eventually it becomes about them. Right. Um, yeah, the only thing I could think of would be like immersive theater, which is very much like a game unto itself. Yeah. And, um, you know, I haven't participated in immersive theater a lot, um, or at all, I should say. You should go to Sleep No More in New York if you're there. I've heard of it. I've I've heard of it. It's good. But um, there's something about, like, like my favorite Warcraft stories um, don't revolve around, you know, what Thrall did at the Maelstrom. Mm -hmm. I I really don't care. It's not that interesting. Mm -hmm. Like, Thrall's a cool character that I like. Um... A lot, but what he did at the Maelstrom is much less interesting to me than what you did with your guild last night. Sure. And why it means so much to you and why you care so much about it. There's a connectivity and an interactivity that exists in games that you just don't see anywhere else right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why games really speak to me. Games can range from anything from storytelling devices to true art. I think games mm-hmm. can be art and should be looked at as art to entertainment, to persistent social experiences. Like, and in the best cases in a game like, you know, World of Warcraft or Rust, it's all bleeding together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's all of those things and none of those things at once. And, yeah. um, that's, what's magical about games to me. Yeah. Let me tell you, I, I played through Cataclysm. I know what Thrall did at the Maelstrom. And from my perspective, he stood there and swirled his hand around for, for hours on end. So, yeah. I don't know. Mm. So, but, but it's interesting, you know, the play, sort of the centrality of the player and the player experience and the player-generated story, which I feel I, I, I'm in total agreement with. Um, it's the, the emergent narrative that comes out of the play experience that I've said in the past is like the, the quote-unquote important story of a game. And obviously some some types of games lend themselves to that emergent narrative. Like, I think everybody... I don't know, did you... If you've played Gone Home, that was super big... I did ...years ago. Like, I think that game had, like, a great written narrative. And although that there definitely is room for some emergence in, like, the order that you explore the space and, like, read the... Discover the movie, everybody has a v- fundamentally similar playthrough experience if you don't try and purposely, like, break the game. Like, if you're going to play the game by its own rules, you're going to start here, you're going to see all of these things, and then you're going to get to the end. Um, but I think that, and I think this is that these are not the sorts of games that Blizzard makes generally. You know, they make those more emergent narrative opportunities. Um, and I was thinking about sort of story, and it seems this, like this is true of Overwatch, right? Like, Overwatch has very little story in the actual game. There are the published short stories and comics. I would say it has a very little linear narrative. Right. But there's we, a try to, we actually put so much story into everything the characters say, the reasons why they look the way they do, the, way, the reasons the map d- does, but there's no, there's not a plot. Right. So that yeah, that's, this, that's the stuff that I would call like world building. Yeah. As opposed to like, right, as opposed to plot. So like there's narrative and plot and, and, 
what is story and how, how do we define it. But yeah, it, when I'm playing Overwatch, you know, all of that stuff feels feels very like world-building and not like narrative. Um, and something that has been commented on with Overwatch is that like the story, that, like the actual narrative of Overwatch is like almost not advanced from when it came out three years ago. I was listening to a podcast and they said Overwatch's story has advanced like three minutes in three years. <laughs> um, but you do keep how much adding has, to it. I would like to say how much does Dota 2 story or does CSGO's Dota, does story Dota have a story? Or League of Legends right. story advanced story. in the past 10 years? I don't know. Yeah. I don't play any of those games. So I'm flattered um, that we did such a good job that people care <laughs> where they seem to not care about right, other multiplayer only games. Right. So this is but this is something that's interesting to me is that like fans, even before Overwatch came out, were real became really invested in the Overwatch characters. I think to a degree that was surprising to me. Maybe you guys you know saw that coming. Uh, because you've got you know teams of people who are who are paid to know these things. But um, no, we. I think mm-hmm. we wanted it to come. We we don't have teams of people who are paid mm-hmm. to know these things. Yeah. Um, we made a deliberate effort to make people care about the world and the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, our launch strategy was to create the animated shorts, mm-hmm. um, which would give people a taste of the universe and help them to fall in love with the characters mm-hmm. and the universe and realize that there was more here than just. There was more potential than just a mm-hmm. multiplayer action shooter. Mm-hmm. That you could imagine other games, other mediums being explored in the Overwatch universe. For sure, like you, you could easily make you know an action RPG in Overwatch or you know some some other sort of game. But sort of what I what I'm leading into, I guess, is is from from the document question thing that we that I sent you. Um, that because people were so invested in these characters and because the the bespoke narrative of Overwatch moves so slowly and int- new details are introduced uh, at a relatively sort of measured pace. A lot of people come up with their own sort of fan theories or sort of ideas about the characters, and none of this is new. I think I said in the document, like, there's been, you know, Star Trek fanfic about these ca- about their characters that are way more fleshed out yeah. uh, and has, you know, for years. But when you have a sort of, the the internet I think has really changed this from you know, the the seventies or whatever where you have a, a convention of Star Trek people like you just have so many more people producing so much fan content and there becomes these sort of these fan canons and like this is true about a character because everybody says it's true like I don't know what I I would think of an example but I'm not deeply embedded in these communities of Overwatch fans um, so that when you do do something like the the um, the Bastet short, which came out recently about um, Soldier 76, and it had that bit about his relationships in it, which I know made a lot of people really happy, but you always run the risk of stepping on something that the fans have come up with. And if we're thinking about sort of who who is the author of these games, in in a way, like, the players are themselves authoring their own story, not just through the gameplay, but when it moves out into these fan things as well, sort of their own canon for the world. And it seems like it becomes a real challenge to put out these sorts of things that for the story that that you're interested in telling or where where it feels appropriate without stomping all over what 
communities of readers have themselves authored? And sort of how, how do you, how do you like think, deal with it's, that? It's a mix. Uh, I mean, we have the story very figured out and mm-hmm. where it's going and where it's going to go for the next five years. Mm-hmm. I would say at the very least, we know where mm-hmm. we're going. Um, we're also very in tune with the community. Mm-hmm. And there are some of the things that the community wants that we're, we know and we love and we respect and we're going to make that happen. And there's some areas where it's okay for us to be the artist who created the mm-hmm. game and say, you know, I, I know you want Somber to have blue hair, but she has purple hair. Sure. We're, we're sorry, mm-hmm. you know, like, but that's who Sombra is as the creators of Sombra. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as long as we're not too heavy handed and don't play the role of God most of the time, I think it's all good. Um, and that we have a plan and we can help steer the community. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because the points you bring up show uh, and I don't think your average player would stop and think about this. I think it's very easy to go to Reddit and go, there's no lore for Overwatch. Blah, I'm angry about it. And like to stop, to stop for a second and go, actually we've done, if you compare us to other multiplayer-only games, there's probably mm-hmm. more lore in Overwatch than just about anything else. Um, add to that, part of the reason, and this is more psychological, but... Mm-hmm. And people don't like to analyze themselves in the, to this degree. Part of the reason people have such an affinity for the universe is because mm-hmm. we've left space for them for sure, to create their own story and have their own fantasy about who their character is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give a weird analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, Star Wars was way better when it was three movies. That's not a controversial statement, I think. It's not, but we should apply that to this... Mm-hmm. How come I can't have more Star Wars? And, you know, what's wrong with George Lucas? It's been, you haven't made a Star Wars movie in 10 years. Like, you would never, well, people did say that, and they weren't happy with the results. Like, be careful what you wish for. Mm -hmm. You know, when you love something and you cherish it, um, you have to be careful with your demands a little bit. um, Because it might not always evidence itself to you until it's too late that that demand actually made what you love worse, not better. I have this theory that we live in the age of what I call creative Darwinism. Mm -hmm. And um, what I mean by that is that um, when I think back to creative people throughout history, um, like, you know, you could take a composer like Mozart or a painter like Van Gogh or something like that Mm -hmm. and think about, either based on technology or society, how many influences they had surrounding them Mm -hmm. and how limited that was to what exists in 2019. And um, how many people could face-to-face directly, or even through the mail, Mm -hmm. give Mozart feedback on his music? You know, how much did he directly from the audience hear... You know, like my favorite quote from the movie is too many fucking notes in, in that song. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, in 2019, where everybody is entitled to be being able to um, directly give their feedback to their creative influences, you know, that I can tweet Mozart and say, eh, the song was okay, too many notes. Um we are creating a situation where the people 
who are the creative influences of our world Mm -hmm. now have to have another element that they didn't have to have in the past, which Mm -hmm. is they have to have the stamina and the fortitude to put up with unrelenting, unfiltered, entitled, constant feedback from everybody. Everybody Um, wants it to be for them. Yeah. And and not only that, but not everybody knows how to express them. Because I've known, I have very good friends who are game developers, who are brilliant game developers, Mm -hmm. who are no longer game developers because they're sick of hearing the feedback. They they stopped making Mm -hmm. games. Yeah. And, um, you know, I have a friend who's now writing a novel up in uh, Portland who used Mm -hmm. to be a brilliant game director, and he's just not going to do it anymore. And um, he just doesn't want to put up I, why do I have to put up with everybody's opinions and and where I go where I'm going with this creative Darwinism concept mm-hmm. is imagine had that existed throughout history and Van Gogh is the type of person who hated reading his Twitter feed or looking at YouTube reactions to Van Gogh art mm-hmm. maybe he, after one painting he would have stopped like we are actually well, look what happened to him anyway right well, yeah. maybe Van Gogh is a bad example. <laughs> but, but, no, but, like, but I think like there are people who are working right now that are like 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 Van Gogh, right? Like that didn't go away. Like people, you can do real damage to people. Yes, and um, I don't know if the the result, like mm-hmm. if we just say, well, like let me just be a fan with a Twitter account and a YouTube mm-hmm. account, and I'm allowed to comment on anything that I see, mm-hmm. um, which is a great power and responsibility, but we don't look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we look at it as an entitlement, you know. Oh, um, well, Katy Perry deserves to hear what I have to say about her latest song, and I can hit her straight up on Twitter. And you think she doesn't read that? You, know, she, you think she's not checking that? You know, you you, you stop a minute and think: um, Is that the type of influence that should be mm-hmm. on our um, people who are creating? And who are we? Who are we eliminating from the creative process who could have been the greatest creative creators yeah. of our time because they just didn't want to hear it anymore? Yeah. And that scares me. That actually really, really scares me. And it's interesting because I guess before we started reading, I was saying, like, this the original intent of this thing that I was doing was like to provide that access because I mean, 2013 was a it wasn't that long ago, but like it was a nowhere near as loud on the internet if you were just a person on Twitter or whatever as it is now. Like, the landscape has really changed. Maybe, like, I guess maybe we're redundant because now you can just tweet at Overwatch or whatever. But I think having having the per, sort of making making the subject of the discussion into a person really helps with that, I think, because people are, in my experience at least, way less likely to maybe not express themselves, but to be reasonable in how they express themselves when they understand that there's like an actual person that's talking to being spoken to or sort of that you're hearing from. People are wonderful face to face. Um, I have great interactions yeah. with the vast majority of people. I just walk into on, mm-hmm. on the street and we have a great conversation. It's so weird. I always use like the driving analogy, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, like if somebody pulls their car too close in front of mine on the freeway. Mm-hmm. Like I'm angry and right. maybe I'm going to flip them the bird or something. And why am I doing this? Cause we have this level of abstraction, mm-hmm. which is I'm in my bubble and they're in their bubble. But if like, you know, somebody, you know, like me and this other person were walking and they accidentally like stepped in front of me, 
they would like they'd turn around and say, "Hey, I'm oh, sorry. sorry about that," and I'd be like, "Oh, no, no problem, yeah. man. It's all all good," mm-hmm. because the human connection is there. Sure. Somehow, um, the anonymity um, really loses the human connection, and mm-hmm. I think we lose touch of our own humanity in how we communicate with other people, mm-hmm. um, and we make this assumption about these people who we actually revere. You right. know, our our idols on the internet, like these people, um, you know, who we think of as uh, brilliant and unreachable to unknowable to us. You know, these are just people I see in the news or, mm-hmm. you know, I hear about um, in, in all these places. Um, but somehow it's okay for me to lash out. Like I can, mm-hmm. I can tell George Lucas that I, I thought episode one was super shitty and he should have stuck to the first three movies. What an asshole comment that is. Right, like, you would never say it to his face. This is... When you meet George Lucas, you get on your hands and knees and you thank the man for creating probably the three most influential films in your lifetime. And who gives a fuck about anything else that he's done? Like, like this is a person who actually changed your life through his creative pursuits. Yeah. That's how you should treat George Lucas, not being a fucking asshole to him on Twitter, you know. <sighs> well, he left. I mean, he left too, right? Yeah. Yeah, we drove him away. Yeah, like he's he's now making like small movies that he just wants to make, and they'll probably like they'll never be as big as Star Wars, and he doesn't care. Yeah. Um, so I guess before uh, sort of we get to there, there were a couple people that did have questions that they wanted to submit through me while I was here, but I do I do want to get to in the last we got like fifteen minutes left. Okay. Um, that that question of authorship one more time, sort of thinking about you know, there are so many people like in in this building. That are working on Overwatch. That are you know the programmers, the artists, you know, all these people that we walk past, and all of them are in some way the authors of Overwatch. In addition to the players, let's say, like, how do you how do you think about authorship in games? Putting aside like a Lucas Pope, who does you know Return of the Overdone and he does everything. He does yeah, everything. that's you, very rare. In, right in games, it actually annoys me because um, you know as somebody who. Um, has become the face of Overwatch and is a spokesperson for Overwatch. Um, A lot of people associate me as the person who made Overwatch. I was one of 70 people who made Overwatch. And this isn't me trying to be humble. My contribution was equal to or lesser than the 69 other people on the project at Mm -hmm. the time. There's 140 working on it now. Um, But at the time when we shipped it, we Mm -hmm. we were 70 people. Every game that's made, um, you know, you can always try to put a person on a pedestal and assign authorship to that one person, mm-hmm. and you're probably wrong, you know, except in your right. rare case of, you know, Oberdin or whatever. But, right. um, you know, if you loved Red Dead Redemption 2 or if you loved God of War... There are a thousand people that worked on that game. There are a lot of people who poured their heart and souls, um, and... All of their contributions are what made that thing awesome and magical. Mm-hmm. And you might not know about... It. Right. I always... like, And maybe this is because I'm a game developer. Mm-hmm. I, whenever a game rolls the credits, mm-hmm. out of respect, I sit there and I, I watch. And mm-hmm. I just go... And it's I read all their names. And, um, and uh, I just think about how awesome they were that they came together as a team and they made this thing happen. Mm-hmm. Do you, and so do you think about the player as one of those authors? Yeah, I think, um, like, 
the way I always describe it is, you know, we're the creators of the game and the universe up until we announce it. Mm -hmm. And then we've handed off ownership at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and then Except there's, for when you want Sombra to have purple hair. <laughs> and then there's a transition between, like, announce yeah. and beta and release. Right. And we shift our roles into um, eventually becoming custodians of mm -hmm. the experience. And that's what we are. Um, I do think, I do believe in the talent of the craft of game making, mm -hmm. meaning I believe um, a game designer has talents that a player does not. I believe mm -hmm. an animator has talents that a player does not, a character right. modeler, a server programmer. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't believe that the game is just handed off to the players and they know what's best for the game and mm -hmm. by consensus. You know, we have over 40 million players playing Overwatch collectively, you, you know, 40 million people collectively couldn't find their way out of a wet paper bag because human beings, each one of them individually could sure. easily do yes. that. But as a group, if we had to say all 40 million of us have to agree on the best way to get out of this wet paper bag, we'd probably be here for a week because right. 40 million people can come to no ra rational consensus mm -hmm. and they think they all speak for each other and they don't realize that they're all completely different with completely unique um, perspectives. And it's sort of the job of the development team to realize that there is no one single voice of the community, and there's no one single voice of the player, but there are millions of voices of players, and there's millions of individuals, mm -hmm. each with different needs. Um, that's very unique. And that's where we're in this weird kind of play referee stage where um, what one vocal group might be calling for over here okay, is the, opposite is the exact opposite because these people have self-selected into this community mm -hmm. that there's another community that the game speaks to them in some totally other way that mm -hmm. we're going to betray if we listen to these people. Mm -hmm. um, so making a call can be a little bit tough. So we become a little bit referee yeah. also in that world. Yeah. I think your answer leads into our, our first question from the community, from, from Corbin B., which is, how does it feel to be such a public figure on such a popular game and to become a celebrity uh, just for talking about it? And also, how much fun is the Yule Log? Oh, the, okay. I think so, really two questions, but... Yeah, so um, I find being a public figure to be um, weird, awkward, and dumb. Um, I'm very embarrassed by it. Um, it feels... Um, unearned mm -hmm. as well to me because like I said I'm basically when you say something like that it's me taking credit for 69 other people mm -hmm. who equally deserve that recognition mm -hmm. um, my team kind of understands the situation and I think when people recognize me they realize it's recognizing the overwatch team mm -hmm. um, there's separate from that of my sort of embarrassment of not wanting to take credit for what other people have done and mm -hmm. people don't realize there are so many talented people on this thing. But also um, being a public figure is, um, it's super weird and awkward. Um, <laughs> we all grow up just being ourselves. Like you're always normal to yourself. Mm -hmm. And there's a weird moment where you cross into the public eye where you start to be recognized and people start to engage with you in a very different way than you're used to. Um, and you almost, you, you start to um, kind of belong to people 
It's like um, when you go to Disneyland mm -hmm. and you muscle your way up to the guy in the Mickey Mouse suit and you, you hand the person your camera and you get your picture with Mickey Mouse. Mm -hmm. You don't stop to think for a second like there's a person in the Mickey Mouse suit and being a public figure is being the guy in the Mickey Mouse suit all day long. Mm -hmm. um, every time you're interacting with someone, the moment is for them. You're more of like a token or mm -hmm. uh, you're a selfie for them to prove you're an anecdote, you're a meme. Mm -hmm. um, you want to have a deep, engaging experience with somebody. Like I mm -hmm. always just try to be very thankful that they play the game. And mm -hmm. a lot of people give me a lot of really good feedback about what they like about the game or what characters they play. Um, but I feel very embarrassed by the situation. Mm -hmm. And then also being a public figure, um, you you start to see um, some of the weirdness in humanity and the dark side of humanity. Um, there's some dark moments that happen that aren't cool. And uh, it affects your personal life greatly. Um, for example, my wife is um, very um, not cool with me being a public figure. She doesn't like it. And um, like we hardly will ever go out to dinner anymore because it's very shocking and upsetting to her when people come up to us, you mm -hmm. know, when we're eating. I will always be gracious to whoever comes up to me, but it's uncomfortable for her. Sure, you're out. And, and so <laughs> now she has made the decision, like on a Friday night, I'll say, oh, let's go out to dinner. You know, there's that place we love. And she'll just be like, I don't you know, someone might recognize you and I don't want to go. So it actually has had this weird personal effect on me where like mm -hmm. it's affected my wife and it's made her unhappy and that makes me unhappy. And mm -hmm. so it's weird. I, I, I only can describe it as being weird and dumb and awkward. Yeah. Now, um, I've, I've had nowhere, obviously, near on the same scale, but like I used to play, yeah, I guess I technically still like the ga a game called Kingdom of Loathing. And they just put a game like a year or two called West of Loathing, which did very well. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm, I'm but, not. But um, I used to like run the wiki for that site, which I guess would be like the Wowhead equivalent. Um, and I never like went to anything, any like public thing for that game until like probably like three or four years ago after doing it for like over a decade. And it's just weird to like walk into a room where everybody knows who you are, but you don't know who anybody is. Yeah. It's like, really weird and off-putting in some way. I, you know, I stepped off a plane at JFK Air airport mm -hmm. and right as I walked out, you know, five hour flight and I mm -hmm. walk off the plane and somebody instantly knows your name and you don't know their name. Mm -hmm. I, I, there are people who live their whole lives who strive for fame mm -hmm. and that's like they think that's what they want and it is what they want there's people who just love it and feed into mm -hmm. it and to me i i just badly want like genuine human interaction with people mm -hmm. and it feels terrible when somebody knows your name and you don't know right. their name like it's just weird you know mm -hmm. i i'm not comfortable with it yeah no, i i can i can totally understand um, our second question comes from Tom Reeve, and this is a lore question. Oh, a, shit. I'll probably get this what, wrong. What can you reveal about Bastion's romantic life? I think he's been reading Austin Walker's tweets. I don't know if you're familiar. Oh, um, <laughs> there's nothing to say about Bastion's uh, romantic life. Wow. Yeah. Bastion, can, can not a robot know love? We have robot. We've shown, yeah. uh, we've shown that there's um, omnic and uh, human love mm -hmm. can exist in our universe. Mm -hmm. um, Bastion's a bit of a different story. Bastion was built as a war machine right. He's got a big that gun. has a 
a default and right. and he found his humanity through his default okay. or his humanity or his omnicness through his forever. default mm-hmm. yeah forever forever alone bastion yeah oh, that's so sad that's i guess that that sadness is the core is a core of his personality though Maybe. well he has an affection for ganymede yeah, but I, I would say hand. that's uh yeah. that's platonic yeah uh, and our third question comes from Mertis. It says, moving from an MMO to an FPS is a pretty dramatic change in terms of design sensibilities. Could you talk a little bit about why, what was the inspiration of what design choices transferred, even something as simple as a party of five in WoW versus six in Overwatch, for example? Yeah, that's, um, that's a great three question. three minutes we have left. That's a great question. Um, as a designer, um, as a lot of the designers, I, a lot of the other... Um, designers I work with on Overwatch actually came from WoW and StarCraft. Mm -hmm. It was very refreshing for us to go from an MMO to an FPS. For me personally, I had two favorite genres in my life. One Mm -hmm. was MMO and one was FPS. So um, having had worked on World of Warcraft for six and a half years, it was very exciting to go. And and I don't want to say we figured everything out on WoW, Mm -hmm. but from a personal level... There were still challenges every single day working on World of Warcraft, but the challenges became um, more and more focused, whereas trying to tackle something like a totally different genre that I had never worked in before, like an FPS, mm-hmm. um, that was like a, like a life-changing challenge, like, like almost at the calling level. <laughs> like I've got to go to that space mm-hmm. and, and see if I can do it. Um, can I climb that mountaintop? And um, that was really, really fun. Um, obviously, the sensibilities are totally different, like the scale at which you think of things, um, the types of problems that exist, the types mm-hmm. of games they are. You know, WoW is a progression-based, persistent game, really, um, whereas um, Overwatch is a competitive team-based game. And, you know, take Shooter out of it, like that's mm-hmm. just wildly different um, right there. Even things like the group size... The group size just shows that, um, and I think you could apply this from one MMO to another. It's not even switching genres. Um, and it's it's kind of um, the comment I was making about Will Wright earlier where every decision made on a game um, happened for a reason mm-hmm. and a lot of thought was put into it. On World of Warcraft, the way we came up with the group size was that um, it was really Eric Dodds, mm-hmm. um, who was the creator of Hearthstone. Mm-hmm. who was the designer responsible for that group size. He was having a lot of debates with Alan Adham, who was the lead mm-hmm. designer. And um, we were at first we were referencing EverQuest, which had a six-person group size. Um, and Eric was uh, fighting for a much smaller group size because he wanted more intimacy in WoW grouping. And the counter-argument, um, and at, at times we were even like exploring, like should it be three-person groups or four-person groups? And then the argument was... Well, if we have enough classes, you wanna you wanna make it liberal enough that like if the community decides that you have to have a priest and a warrior in every group, mm-hmm. and if it's three person group size, and we have you know um, I don't know seven other classes besides warrior and priest, that's not gonna be very fun for the seven other classes to get in a group. So mm-hmm. it should be a little bit bigger than that. But how big should it go to still feel intimate? And still have the right mix of you know tank damage um, and and healer. So that's how WoW was come up with. With Overwatch, it was very different. We were thinking less 
about the roles in Overwatch for group size. And the design decision was based more on how big should the maps be and how should the combat feel. Mm -hmm. So we tried smaller group sizes. Um, the problem with smaller group sizes is it raised the level of competition so high that the game became very that stressful. one kill is so valuable. Yes. Uh, and that felt problematic. And the problem, we, we tried 8 versus 8 was, um, we actually had it in for months like that, mm -hmm. 8 versus 8 Overwatch. And the problem there was... Um, you didn't. You started to hit the point where you felt like less of a contributor. Like mm -hmm. you didn't feel like you could sway the tide of battle. And then even more so, like you and I might be in a in a part of the map having a really cool one v one. Like that mm -hmm. sometimes happens where you know, like a couple sure. people are kind of having a skirmish or brawling with each other. Right. And then in eight v eight, what would frequently happen is just like some truck would come out of the side of you know your peripheral vision and just run you over. And you're like, what just happened? So. Mm -hmm. The, the combat started to feel less busy. deliberate and yeah, it started to just feel chaotic. So I think it's very interesting that the way that the group size was determined in World of Warcraft was driven by very different design problems and design principles than it was in Overwatch, but both were thought about deeply for a really long time. Well, we're we're two minutes over. It's it's two thirty two. So I have to I have to let you go. I think awesome. But um, thank this, you so much. Yeah, this was so much fun. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, and um, yeah, I I really appreciate you uh, giving me the time and uh, talking about these things. Um, I don't know if you have you have anything else you want to say before we wrap up. It's fine if you don't. No, yeah. I, I I first of all I want to say good luck to you on your PhD. Thank like you. you're extremely thoughtful, and I think it's great what you're pursuing, and I'm really interested to see you know how this all comes about, and then. Um, to all the fans of Overwatch, we just greatly appreciate and love you so much. And um, it's it means so much to every single person who's played our game. It like means a lot to me personally, deeply. Mm -hmm. And I know I speak for my team and it means something to them personally as well. Um, we are real people and this is a creation and a love of ours. So the fact that anybody else liked it at least once was really cool to us and yeah it actually gets old <laughs> it actually means a lot to us um so thanks for giving us this opportunity all right well thank you again i guess i'll i'll turn off the recording right so that's the end of our interview again very very huge thank you to jeff for being so generous with his time we really really appreciate it uh this episode as all our episodes was brought to you in part by our Patreon backers at patreon.com slash redpagespodcast. So thank you so much to them as well for supporting us and allowing us to, you know, cover things like travel expenses and equipment and all the little things that you wouldn't think speaking into a microphone for a couple hours would incur, but does. So thank you so much to that community and our listeners and to you for sitting through this entire episode. Uh, that's the end of this episode, so I'm going to say our normal sign-off line. Keep on, Trucklestein.